Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, let me also welcome our C-SPAN audience. I'm Roger Pilon, the director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today's forum marking the publication of a new book uh, by Professor David Bernstein, uh, Lawless, the Obama Administration's Unprecedented Assault on the Constitution and the Rule of Law. Uh, this book and uh, this form could not be more timely. Just yesterday, as we all know, we witnessed the president telling the nation that uh, he was directing officials in his administration to expand their regulation of the Second Amendment rights of Americans in several ways, including, apparently, by expanding the definition of what it means to be in the business of selling firearms. And he did it, as he so often has in the past, not by going to Congress, uh, but simply uh, by um, uh, his own authority or alleged authority. If Congress won't act, I will, he tells us, seemingly oblivious, if not indifferent, to the constitutional restraints on his power. As many have noted, these repeated usurpations have served to divert attention from a long list of domestic and foreign policy disasters, uh, but they've also served, fortunately, to direct our attention to the Constitution and to one of its bedrock principles, the separation of powers. That will be our focus today as we canvass the many constitutional assaults of the past seven years. To do that, uh, Professor Bernstein will speak for about 30 minutes, uh, discussing several of the issues that the book covers, and then we'll hear opposing commentaries on the book and then open the floor up to you folks uh, for questions. I'll introduce each of our speakers before he speaks. David Bernstein is a professor uh, at the George Mason University School of Law in Arlington, Virginia, where he has been teaching since 1995. He's written over 60 frequently uh, cited uh, scholarly articles, book chapters, and studies. He's the author of Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights Against Progressive Reform, which I commend to all of you, especially those of you who still are uh, of the persuasion that Lochner was right, uh, wrongly decided. Uh, he's also the author of You Can't Say That, The Growing Threat to Civil Liberties from Anti-Discrimination Laws, which we here at Cato published in 2003. He's the author of Only One Place of Redress, African Americans, Labor Regulations, and the Court from Reconstruction to the New Deal, which the Duke University Press published in 2001. He's the co-author of The New Wigmore, Expert Evidence, uh, which is a case law, uh, and also of Phantom Risk, Scientific Inference and the Law, which the MIT Press published. Um, he's a graduate of the Yale Law School, where he was senior editor of the Yale Law Journal, and a John, John M. Olin Fellow in Law, Economics, and Public Policy. Please welcome David Bernstein. Thank you, Roger, uh, for the kind introduction. Uh, thanks also to Ilya, whose wife had a baby two days ago, and she's still in the hospital. And uh, I'm sure he's giving up major uh, major points in his marriage to come here today. We have, we have an arrangement. She is handling the baby's input. I am handling the baby's output. Oh, hopefully there won't be too much output while we're here um, in that case. 
So I'm going to start with an overview of the problem and then briefly run through some of the highlights or, if you will, lowlights of Obama administration lawlessness. Then I'll delve deeply into a few examples. And finally, because nothing happens politically in an intellectual vacuum, I'll spend some time discussing the intellectual influences on the progressive left that, in my view, have diminished respect for the rule of law among liberal Democrats, among the lawyers of the Obama administration specifically, which includes, of course, President Obama himself. So let's first talk about the problem. The trend of an ever-expanding executive is not new and goes back at least to the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. As presidential power has grown over the last century or so, so has, not surprisingly, the abuse of presidential power. And even as the political divide continues to widen, uh, the partisan political divide, one thing unites Republican and Democratic presidents. They each of any party try to aggressively expand their own prerogatives at the expense of not only the other branches, but of the Constitution and the rule of law itself. The big reaction to this by Congress came in the 1970s after the disasters of Vietnam and of the corruption of Watergate. And Congress enacted a series of measures to try to restrain the executive and bring more power back to itself and to curb the executive and to restore, to some degree, the rule of law. These reforms, unfortunately, have been largely ineffective. Nevertheless, until recently, it seemed that presidents felt constrained, uh, in most cases, to try to obey the law, but at least to pretend that they were doing so. Unfortunately, we seem to have reached a tipping point with the Obama administration. This administration has been aggressive about asserting presidential power, doing so in lawless ways and in unusually wide range of areas. Moreover, and this is really maybe the more, most unprecedented thing to, coin a, to use a word from the title of my book that the Obama administration has accomplished, uh, that the president himself and his advisors seem to see this not as something to be ashamed of. We don't surreptitiously go around Congress. We don't surreptitiously violate the rule of law. But this is a desirable way of governing, something to brag about. We can't wait, says the president. We can't wait for Congress. So I'm just going to take my pen out and sign things. Obama behaves as if there is some inherent virtue in the president ignoring the Constitution's separation of powers and the laws that are on the statute books in favor of presidential decree and whim, as if promoting progressive political ends at the expense of the rule of law is a proper way to govern, not simply as a matter of last resort in an emergency, but as a matter of principle. When pressed for an explanation, his supporters claim that the fact that the Republicans in Congress are alleged to refuse to cooperate with the president's agenda and that Congress is supposedly dysfunctional somehow gives the president extra powers beyond those provided by the Constitution. But in fact, the Constitution doesn't contain implicitly or explicitly any Congress is a bunch of jerks so the president gets more power clause. It just isn't there. I've looked, I've looked several times. Um, let me, so let me run down some of the examples that law, like I'm not going to summarize the whole book for you, but let me run down some of the examples that Lawless gives of the abusive exercise of presidential authority. Going to war in Libya, in blatant violation of the president's own promise, own statements before uh, he was elected about when the president could go to war without congressional approval, and even more uh, egregiously, in blatant violation of the War Powers Act appointing so-called czars to high-level government positions to evade uh, constitutionally mandated confirmation hearings and also congressional oversight, 
modifying, delaying, uh, and ignoring various provisions of the law he himself signed, the Affordable Care Act, in violation of the law itself. Attacking and slandering private individuals for engaging in constitutionally protected speech. Issuing draconian regulations uh, for sexual assault on campus, not through formal regulation, but through an informal dear colleague letter that's not subject to any normal legal proceedings or review. Ignoring 100 years of advice from the Office of Legal Counsel and arguing that the DC delegate could be granted voting rights in Congress. Running General Motors from the White House without any hint of statutory authorization to do so, and then also rewriting the bankruptcy laws to favor unsecured creditors, notably the auto workers union, over the secure creditors who are supposed to get preference under the law. Imposing common core standards on the states via administrative feedback, and, and much more. That's just a, uh, something of a laundry list, and there's even more in the book. Uh, and because this is a laundry list, let me just talk about three of them in some more detail. The first one is uh, one that probably most of you have never heard of. Uh, I just mentioned it, other than the fact I just mentioned it. But it's really important because it is so telling about the Obama administration's attitude towards the Constitution and the rule of law right from the very beginning. So in April 2015, less than three months after Inauguration Day, the administration decided to push for a law that would grant the DC delegate voting rights in the House of Representatives. The Constitution, however, limits voting rights in Congress to representatives of the several states. DC is a specially designated federal district. It's not a state. Is that fair? Is that just? Not my concern. That's what the Constitution says. That's what the law says. You won't like it, you change the law. Uh, so attorneys in Obama's Office of Legal Counsel told him, look, you can't support this law. Uh, we have 100 years of Office of Legal Counsel precedent saying the D.C. delegate can't get a vote. Republican administrations, Democratic administrations, liberal administrations, conservative, they all agree. And I should point out two things about the OLC, Office of Legal Counsel. One is that they are mostly, there's some civil servants, they're mostly political appointees by the president. So they're part of the executive branch, and they're mostly the president's own political appointments. What does that mean? That means they really bend over backwards to try to find legal authority for whatever the president wants to do. Therefore, this is the second key point, they're one of the very few checks on presidential authority because the presidents typically understand, well, if the OLC tells me I can't do something, they're my own lawyers, they're part of the executive branch, they're trying to find a way to let me do what I want to do, then I shouldn't do it. Right? That's just the norm. OLC says no, that's basically it. But instead of deferring to the OLC, Attorney General, uh, General, General sorry, Eric Holder went to the office of the Solicitor General and asked them to review the issue of whether the DC delegate get voting rights. Now Holder didn't ask the SG's office, is this constitutional or not? Because A, he knew they'd say no, and B, that's not the SG's job. What the S Solicitor General's office does is defend the government in court, and by tradition, they will defend any law that they can make a non-frivolous argument in favor of its legality, of its constitutionality. So Holder asked the OLC, is this so absurd that you couldn't defend it in court? And they said, no, it's not that absurd. And then they went ahead and did it. So let's review here. What was at stake? Nothing really was at stake in practice, because how often does the House of Representatives ever have tie votes? Never, basically. If there ever was an occasion where there was a tie vote that was broken by a DC delegate, it would almost certainly have been immediately challenged in court. And almost certainly, any judge who would hear the case would say, we're going to throw this out because the DC delegate cast a deciding vote, and they can't be a voting member of the House under the Constitution. 
So this was a purely political uh, symbolic maneuver to satisfy liberal democratic constituencies who've been pushing for more political power for the overwhelmingly democratic district. It was purely symbolic, had no real influence on anything. Nevertheless, Attorney General Holder and by implication President Obama himself were willing to undermine the OLC, one of the very few checks internally on presidential authority right at the beginning of the administration for basically no reason, just for the symbolism and politics. And this, I think, reflected the attitude that was forthcoming later. And note, there's nothing about Democrat Republicans in Congress. There's nothing to do with the obstreperous, uh, dysfunctional Republicans in Congress. This was uh, at a time when uh, the Democrats controlled the House and Senate uh, by large majorities. Another example I want to spend a little, more, a little time on is War Powers and Libya, specifically the War Powers Act. The War Powers Act was passed in 1975, again, meant to rein in executive authority after Nixon, specifically after Nixon uh, bombed Cambodia uh, secretly without congressional authorization, killing a few hundred thousand people and helping to lead all sorts of disasters in Cambodia's future. Uh, and the law says that when hostilities are involved with foreign countries that the president has to inform Congress and then has 90 days essentially to withdraw soldiers if Congress doesn't give its explicit approval. Now some people think that the War Powers Act is entirely unconstitutional and there's an argument to be made for that, but that's not the argument the Obama administration made. They completely accepted that the, that the War Powers Act is legally valid and comports with the Constitution. Instead, President Obama claimed that bombing Libya for months at a time, killing lots of people, and of course leading to the overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi, was not actually quote unquote hostilities within the meaning of the act. And therefore the act wasn't implicated. This is ridiculous, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a law professor. We're trained, we train our students to argue both sides. But here's one where I can say, well, this is a ridiculous argument. And, and I'm not the only one who thought so. Uh, people criticize the administration from the left and the right. More importantly, Obama's own lawyers, again, at the OLC said, you can't do this. You have to go to Congress. His lawyers at the Defense Department, you think these are folks who, you know, they're representing defense interests. If anything, they really want to go overboard to say you could do it. You can't do this. So President Obama, when trolling around, looking for some lawyer with some authority in his administration, say, oh, you can do this. And he found, of all people, a guy named Harold Coe, who was the former dean of Yale Law School and was serving as State Department legal advisor. Now, Harold Coe was known in the academic world for arguing that the president cannot act unilaterally. Congress needs to have a lot more authority. Harold Coe, even better, had argued that when President Reagan bombed Libya for all of 12 minutes in 1986, that that implicated the War Powers Act. But somehow, he came to the conclusion that bombing Libya for months at a time, uh, 15 years later, did not constitute hostilities within the meaning of the act, and therefore the president could go ahead and do it. Well, wasn't it the case that uh, it wasn't uh, war or hostilities, but rather uh, was it kinetic military action? Kine I, I, something, I don't know. The, the argument supposedly was, well, we're only bombing them, and, sin and therefore, since we're bombing them, American forces aren't actually at risk. Uh, be, unless you know, they get hit by a stray aircraft, anti-aircraft missile, so it's not really hostilities. One problem, as Gene Healy uh, of Cato has pointed out, that one problem with that is that, again, the War Powers Act was largely meant to prevent Cambodia from ha ever happening again, and Cambodia was also solely an air campaign. So just looking at the history of the law, it doesn't make any sense. 
Okay, finally, uh, as far as the examples I'm delving into, let me give the example of this Dear Colleague letter that forced almost every institution of higher education in the United States to rewrite their guidelines for investigating and punishing sexual assault. This was accomplished by a Dear Colleague letter, a guidance letter from the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, which I'll call OCR for short, and endorsed also by the Justice Department. Now, there is no statutory language, no regulations, no case law that supported the imposition of OCR's rules. They just announced it. From that, dear colleagues, from now on, here are the rules we want you to follow. And that's bad enough because it's lawless, uh, but then even worse, the rules themselves completely stripped students accused of sexual, of sexual assault of anything resembling due process protections. Everyone who follows this knows it's within the media that they, the standard of proof had to be now uh, preponderance of the evidence, more than 50%, rather than clear and convincing, which is what most schools used. But that's the least of the troubles. Uh, much more important, the guidance that was given severely discourages any cross-examination of the complainant, which is really stripping away people's rights to defend themselves uh, if there is a he said, she said situation. And even more important, uh, the, the rules say that you're not allowed to ask the complaining individual about his or her past sexual history, regardless of how relevant it might be. So just to take an example, let's say a video circulates around a college campus of a man and a woman engaging in what many would see as a degrading sexual act for the woman. And, the woman and then the woman gets embarrassed, humiliated by this, and she says, well, it wasn't voluntary, it was a sexual assault, and files a complaint with the university. She tells university investigators that it's absurd to think this was voluntary. She would never engage in a degrading sexual act of this nature. The defendant, the person complained about, finds five other men on campus who are willing to swear that this young woman engaged in the exact same sexual act with them, and indeed two of them also have it on videotape. There is not a single court in the United States, no matter how strict a so-called rape shield rule they have trying to protect victims from having to reveal a sexual past that would prohibit that evidence from being admitted. That is just the only way the person could defend themselves, and it's very persuasive. And OCR says you're not allowed to bring this in, and again, not through any kind of formal rulemaking process, but solely by the fiat of its letter. The OCR for four years maintained that this was the legal standard, that all universities had to obey it, until in October, in two separate occasions, the uh, education department officials came to testify before Congress, and two different senators, I think it was, had the perspicacity to ask, where are you getting the legal authority to enforce this against universities? There's no notice and comment, there's no federal register rules, there's nothing. There's just a letter. And they acknowledge, yeah, there's really no legal authority for this. This is just some general guidance. This is what you know, we'd like you to do. Uh, so they added a footnote. Now, if you look on the internet where this letter is, they have a footnote saying this didn't actually make any new law. This is just giving you guidance. Of course, we expect you to obey it. So they're still trying to enforce it, uh, even though there's really no legal authority for it. So those are just a few examples, I think pretty good ones. Um, and I'm actually kind of surprised. I mean, many of us, when Obama was running for president, you know, whether we liked his policies or like most people who would be at Cato uh, severely disliked his policies, we thought he came from this tradition of legal liberalism that cared about civil liberties, the rule of law, separation of powers, and that he would enforce that. It's kind of surprising that um, Obama uh, has been so uh, unconcerned with these legal niceties, and the question is, how do we explain it? And I spent a lot of time thinking about this, uh, and I 
uh, and researching it, and I think a big part of the problem is that Obama and many of his top lawyers come from an intellectual tradition that's actually, unlike the legal liberalism of the past, very skeptical of traditional notions of the rule of law and constitutional fidelity. Consider on the constitutional fidelity front that liberals and progressives have taken to arguing for the last several decades that the Constitution has no objective meaning, that theories of interpretation focusing on the original objective meaning are nonsense, and that the Constitution is a living document that must, be evolved, that must evolve with the times. Meanwhile, on the rule of law front, there is a, a long-standing progressive unease with the concept of the rule of law as it's traditionally been understood. The rule of law, traditionally understood, is maintained by following the law in ways that promote consistency and stability. So everyone knows in advance what the law is going to be. It's going to be applied the same to Joe as to Jane, same if you're black or you're white, same if you're rich or you're poor, et cetera, ensuring equal treatment of the parties. It requires judges and law enforcement officers to impartially enforce the law without abusing their authority. And in our particular constitutional system, the rule of law is maintained by respecting the separation of powers and also by the idea that the president must faithfully execute the laws, whether he agrees with them or not, and whether it's politically convenient or not. So the rule of law was once, you go back to the 1940s, 50s, key element of liberal theories of justice, but no more. Consider, for example, the mission statement of the leading liberal lawyers organization, the American Constitution Society, the liberal counterpart to the conservative federal society. Their mission statement states that our mission, quote, is to promote the vitality of the US Constitution and the fundamental values it expresses, individual rights and liberties, genuine equality, access to justice, democracy, and the rule of law. So note the rule of law is given no more weight than really abstract, unattainable goals like genuine equality. And if you're balancing them, if that's your attitude, hey, we could try, we could try to promote genuine equality here and help these people. Or uh, the rule of law, well, it goes back to the rule of law later, right? That's going to happen. And this didn't happen by accident, but it is the result of longstanding ideological trends of the left. The importance and even uh, coherence of the concept of the rule of law came under a series of attacks in the legal academy coming from the left in the mid-1970s. First came the Critical Legal Studies Movement, or CLS, which is an intellectual descendant of the legal realist movement of the pre-World War II period. In its crudest version, the realists argued that laws and precedents are so indeterminate that they could mean whatever interpreters want them to mean. That's really silly actually, but in less crude versions, which are less silly, legal realism means that extra legal considerations come into play far more than traditional legal analysis allows. Ideology, class bias, all sorts of other things may influence judges. It's not just a legal science. Okay, that was very influential in the 20s and 30s. It kind of fell out of favor among liberals in the 40s and 50s. Why? It seemed nihilistic. It seemed like the kind of thing that gives aid and comfort to the Nazis and communists and others who didn't really respect the rule of law. If there's no rule of law, what intellectual weapons do we have against groups like the Nazis and the communists? But legal realism made a big comeback in the 70s. So I mentioned CLS already, and that also spawned critical race theory, radical legal feminism, and so forth. And as law professor Charles Barzun of UVA explains, CLS adherents, quote, argued that the rule of law was both impossible in practice and in any event undesirable in theory, unquote. Let me read to you from the invitation for the first annual CLS conference held in 1977. 
Law is an instrument of social, economic, and political domination, both in the sense of furthering the concrete interests of the dominators and that and in that of legitimating the existing order. So the rule of law is not, if it exists at all, it's a bad thing because it just helps the elite maintain their power. The more general sensibility of all these critical movements, CLS, critical race theory, radical feminism, can be summed up with the mantra, law is politics. And if that's what you think of the law, it's not terribly surprising why the concept of the rule of law wouldn't appeal to you. The various groups of critical legal scholars uh, whose influence, by the way, peaked right around the late 1980s when I was in law school, and so not coincidentally, uh, perhaps, was Barack Obama. Not coincidentally, not because we were both in law school, but not coincidentally, the ideas peaked while he was there, and he was influenced by them. All these critical scholars were always a minority, even among the majority of left-leaning faculty. Most law professors were and remain traditional liberals, not critical legal scholars. Nevertheless, their influence has been broadly felt uh, in the legal academy and therefore has been influential in undermining commitment to the rule of law. So as it turns out, the rule of law maintains a tenuous foothold as an important concept in the liberal legal academy, but it means something different. It's not the classical liberal rule of law of objectivity, neutrality, and so forth. It's the rule of law, well, if the government wants to do something, it has to come up with a non-ridiculous theory as to why it's legal. So this doesn't put no constraints on the government because uh, the law will only bend so far without breaking. It just doesn't put very much of a constraint on the government. Uh, and in fact, if you were thinking to yourself, what things has the Obama administration really wanted to do that they have decided not to do because someone said it would be illegal to do so? The list isn't very long, uh, even though there have been so many legal controversies. And interestingly enough also, um, when the Bush administration pushed executive power to its limits and beyond, there were quite a few lawyers in the Bush administration who objected. They objected internally, and some of them threatened to resign if the administration went where it wanted to go, and then Bush pushed back. One interesting thing to me about the Obama administration is despite all these legal controversies, surely there must have been someone in the administration at some point said, well, we really shouldn't be doing this. I haven't, I've scoured the uh, literature. I haven't seen a single example of anyone saying, you know, this is so important to maintain the rule of law that if you go ahead and do this, whatever it is, bomb Libya in violation of the War Powers Act or whatever, I'm going to resign. Undermine the OLC the way you're doing. I'm going to resign. No one's done that because the rule of law is just less important than the politics. Admittedly, government officials stretching their power as far as they can without blatantly violating the law is hardly news, but as I mentioned at the, at the beginning of my talk, Obama is the first president, to my knowledge, to actually brag about going around Congress and acting unilaterally. One of the great telling moments of the Obama administration was in 2013, when he won, after he won re-election at his State of the Union address, he gave a big speech. Uh, at that address where he said, I'm going to go around Congress and do whatever I could do with just my pen and piece of paper and sign executive orders. Uh, and not only uh, did Democrats not object in Congress to this usurpation of their power, all the Democrats in the audience gave him a standing ovation. So you'd think that Congress framers hoped that each branch power would counteract power and whatnot, but it turns out that instead partisanship counter is more important than preserving the prerogatives of each branch. Meanwhile, um, the problem with, people often say, well, 
there are all these problems with the president and executive power. Why don't they ju people just sue? Why don't the courts step in? And the problem is that with regard to a lot of executive action, there's a doctrine called standing. You have to have legal standing to sue. You have to have a specific injury that no one else has that's unique to you. And in most cases, when the executive behaves in lawless ways, there's no one to sue. There's no one. You can't sue anyone uh, when Attorney General Holder decides to pursue the D.C. delegates' voting rights. You can't sue the president for bombing Libya and so forth and so on. So one of the great ironies of the Obama administration is when this issue of presidential lawlessness and executive power finally start to get traction in around the summer of 2014, the president was asked about criticism from congressional Republicans that he was overstepping his bounds, and he responded contemptuously, so sue me. Okay, so sue you. Let's, so when we sue you, you will waive any kind of standing issues and let us sue you so we can let the courts resolve who's right. Oh, no. Ever since President Obama said, so sue me, and Congress took them up on that in a few cases, the president's lawyers have been spending all their time in court arguing that no one's allowed to sue him. So it's sort of hardly cricket here. Uh, well, you think I'm acting unconstitutionally? I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to give you my legal theories. Let the courts decide, except you can't sue me. So sue me, except you can't. Obama and his allies, I mean, I'm sure they're good-hearted people. Uh, uh, they want to accomplish good ends. And they probably uh, pose a dilemma this way, for example, in the context of the illegal measures that the president has taken to prop up Obamacare. If we could find a way to ensure that millions of Americans are not deprived of health insurance, shouldn't we do so? How can we, you know, the Republicans won't cooperate with us. They just want to repeal Obamacare. We've passed this great law that's giving millions of people insurance. Shouldn't we find, shouldn't we stretch the law as far as possible to, the, uh, to do what we can to make sure people have health insurance? The problem is that this kind of ends justifies the means reasoning is understandable to the extent it reflects a sincere desire to help needy Americans, but it neglects the long-term damage of undermining legal restraints on the president in favor of, protect, of protecting a current political agenda, however worthy that agenda seems to be at the time. The idea of we had no choice but to seize power to help the people is exactly the rhetoric and reasoning used by every tin pot dictator in the world to justify tyranny. Everyone has their agenda. Right now, this is a great thing to do, but we have to look at the long term. How is this undermining things? And uh, we were discussing earlier uh, before in the, green, in the green room before we came out here, um, how many people who think that it's great that President Obama should be able to stretch the law to achieve his agenda because Congress isn't cooperating think it would be just fine and dandy for President Trump to do the same thing? Do we want President Trump to be signing executive orders on immigration? If you think Obama should be, because he's doing a great humanitarian gesture, humanitarian gesture and letting all these people who stay here do so, it may be great policy. But, you, but the next president's going to be President Trump. And one of the odd things about the exercise of executive power in the United States is that not just informally do what presidents have done in the past become precedent, but the Supreme Court has actually said in many contexts, how do we know what the scope of executive power is? Well, one thing we do is we look at what past presidents have done and whether Congress has been able to stop them or try to stop them. So everything President Obama does is not just going to be, this is what President Obama did, and I love President Obama, isn't that great? It's, do you want President Cruz doing it? Do you want President Rubio doing it? Do you want President Trump doing it? If they're not president in 2016, at some point, someone like them will be president. Do you want them to have those powers? And is it worth whatever you think President Obama is achieving right now? to risk that in the future. Ultimately,
the Obama administration's cavalier attitude toward the rule of law can only be justified if one thinks that law is just politics by another name anyway, law has no independent value, and therefore just get what you can now and don't worry about it. And if that's what Obama and his appointees really believe, maybe the critical legal scholars have won after all. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, David. At least if uh, oh, you're going next, you sure? Okay, good enough. If President uh, Trump does it, then one thing we'll know: it'll be tremendous. Um, all right, we're going to now hear from uh, Ilya Shapiro, and you're going, you're going to be leaving right after this, is that it? Or you're just Oh, okay. Well, I ask because, as you heard, uh, Ilya is a, as of Friday, late Friday night, is a new, is a first time, late Monday night, is a first time father. So he's got, let's, let's, you, you get, you get applause for being, for, it was really, well, I won't comment further on that. Um, all right. I, I did my part with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant. Um, Okay, we're going to then hear from Ilya, who is a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at Cato, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Um, before joining Cato, he was a special assistant uh, advisor to the multinational force in Iraq and uh, on rule of law issues, and he practiced at uh, uh, Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Uh, he uh, is the co-author of uh, Religious Liberties for Corporations, question mark, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution, which came out just uh, in 2014. He uh, has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, the LA Times, USA Today, Weekly Standard, and so forth. Um, he regularly provides commentary on the major media, from CBS to Fox News to CNN to Colbert Report, NPR, and so forth. He's testified often before Congress and state legislatures, and as coordinator of Cato's amicus brief program, he's filed more than 150 friend-of-the-court briefs uh, before the Supreme Court, including one uh, that the Greenian Green Bag selected for its exemplary legal writing collection. He lectures regularly on behalf of the Federalist Society, is a member of the Legal Studies Institute's Board of Visitors at the Fund for American Studies, uh, was an inaugural Washington Fellow at the National Review Institute and a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute, and he's been an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Law School. In 2015, National Law Journal named him on its list of 40 rising stars in the legal community. Before um, entering private practice, Ilya clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He holds his B.A. from Princeton, his master's degree from the London School of Economics, and his J.D. from the University of Chicago Law School. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Roger. Uh, yeah, the reason I'm going second isn't uh, because I have to get out of here immediately, although I am monitoring my phone in case uh, something happens. Uh, but I figured I, I'd let Sia reply to both of us if he wants to, and then you know David can continue that conversation rather than me trying to rebut Sia because this is really about uh, uh, David's uh, project. 
as we enter uh, this final year of, the, of Barack Obama's presidency, there isn't much that the president can do to change people's opinion of him, for better or worse. Uh, his legacy, barring some extraordinary occurrence, including an extraterrestrial one, perhaps, uh, as, as the uh, holiday advertising blitz for the new Independence Day movie uh, reminded us, uh, is baked into history. Setting aside legislation and executive action, on which more shortly, uh, one of President Obama's chief accomplishments has been to return the Constitution to a central place in our public discourse. Unfortunately, the president fomented this upswing in civic interest, not by talking up federalism or the separation of powers, but by blatantly violating the strictures of our founding document. With his pen and his phone, and hearkening to Woodrow Wilson's progressive view of government, and David, this is why I'm not surprised at all by uh, the rule of law violations. I recognized, uh, I'm sure many people did, uh, that the incoming Obamaites uh, were much more about Wilson and Saul Linsky and revolutionary rather than kind of the, uh, the, the 60s uh, 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 le- or the 80s left or, or whatever you want to, uh, the postmodern left. Um, and so he's been taking out his frustrations with uh, the checks and balances that inhibit his ability to fundamentally transform the country. But a lack of congressional acquiescence hasn't stopped him. Even in his first term, the administration launched a We Can't Wait initiative, with senior aide Dan Pfeiffer explaining that, quote, when Congress won't act, this president will. And when the reelected President Obama announced his second term agenda, he explained that, quote, I will not allow gridlock or inaction or willful indifference to get in our way. That sentiment flies in the face of one of the biggest political changes that's occurred in the last decade, roughly starting at the end of the Bush years. That is, lawmakers and citizens no longer consider simply whether a given bill or policy proposal is a good idea, but whether it's constitutional. Where does the government, where does the president get the power to do that? Is a common rallying cry on both the Occupy left and the Tea Party right. That's a healthy development. For too long, even in those rare moments when politicians were faced with constitutional concerns, they've had the attitude of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, You recall that when asked about the authority for Obamacare's individual mandate, she replied, are you serious? Because, of course, constitutional arguments are the last refuge of the scoundrel that has no good policy arguments to make. And so it's a good thing that Americans are taking their founding documents seriously. After all, the Constitution is the font of all federal power. It's carefully structured, um, uh, carefully crafted structural provisions that we learned about in grade school, or at least that y'all learned about. I went to grade school in in Canada. Um, Like most immigrants, I do a job that uh, native-born Americans uh, don't, and that's defending the Constitution, (laughs) such as the separation of powers and checks and balances. These are not merely an application of political theory. Uh, As Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote for a unanimous Supreme Court in the 2011 case of United States versus Bond, federalism is more than an exercise in setting the boundary between different institutions of government for their own integrity. It protects the liberty of the individual from arbitrary power. Bond, you recall, was the -the run-of-the-mill case of uh, adultery, federalism, and chemical weapons, uh, where this woman sprinkled some uh, 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 garden-variety chemical powder on her 
uh, erstwhile best friend's uh, post office box and, and, and front door and car handle uh, when she discovered that the, uh, the erstwhile best friend had been having an affair and indeed was pregnant uh, by her husband. Uh, and rather than being charged uh, for assault or attempted murder by state or local officials, the uh, federal prosecutor, uh, this is in suburban Pennsylvania, went after her for violating the federal legislation that implements the International Convention on Chemical Weapons. A little bit of uh, uh, overkill. And the Supreme Court, uh, this came up to the Supreme Court twice. And once uh, the government lost unanimously, and once the government lost eight to one. That was on the merits. Uh, that prosecutor, by the way, was then transferred from Pennsylvania to the Gulf Coast of Florida. Uh, and that resulted in the last term's case of uh, Yates versus United States, where the fisherman who was catching undersized grouper, it's a, it's a problem, clearly a fish and wildlife violation, uh, both state and federal, uh, was prosecuted uh, and sentenced to uh, a long time in jail for um, violating the anti-shredding provision of Sarbanes-Oxley. Again, a federal overreach struck down uh, by the Supreme Court. Well, if the federal government acts outside the scope of its delegated and carefully enumerated powers, uh, it's no better than an armed mob. Speaking of which, that brings us to Barack Obama's lawlessness, which David Bernstein has covered in a magisterial but brisk book that everyone should read. I won't summarize David's uh, analysis other than to note that while he can't hit everything, which is really a sad statement about where we are, he does an excellent job of covering the waterfront of abuses from Obamacare to Justice Department corruption to the Affordable Care Act to college speech codes to the ACA to anti-discrimination law run amok to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act uh, to rule by SARS and did I mention Obamacare? David didn't really. I think that was a conscious choice. We here at Cato have covered that uh, a lot, of course, uh, both legally and as a matter of policy. And indeed, uh, part of the reason why you don't see a lot of interns flitting about that typically help out with these forums is because of uh, Obamacare. We like to pay our interns, which I thought that the left is in, in favor of. Uh, and yet, because we pay uh, our interns, we uh, can't employ them for longer than three months uh, at a certain number of hours per week, et cetera, without providing them full health care benefits. And because we don't want to either provide that entire full Cadillac package or nothing, we have to employ them for less uh, time during the year, hence uh, no interns uh, to help out here. Um, David also has an interesting chapter on... That sounds like a really serious question. Yeah, well, I, I'm just talking about the consequences, why rule of law is important. It has... Well, okay. Well, that's, yeah, well, that'll be the, the next Cato lawsuit once uh, we finish the, uh, the ones that are existing. Okay, well, David also has this interesting chapter on foreign policy that he talked about, which is tricky because the scope of executive power over foreign affairs is less clearly defined than it is over domestic affairs. And while it's obvious that President Obama violated the War Powers Act, I personally um, am not convinced uh, that the War Powers Act itself uh, is constitutional, but that's a subject for another day. Obama's actions in trying to comply with the War Powers Act says a lot more. He, he unlike other presidents, did not simply say the War Powers Act, uh, I'm not uh, complying with it because it's, uh, it's uh, not constitutional. Uh, and yet here, too, as I said, he's managed to violate clearly established law. If you want even more examples, read what are probably the three most successful op-eds of my career in terms of clicks, and those would be President Obama's top 10 constitutional violations of 
2011, 2013, 2015, respectively. We're talking hundreds of thousands of clicks for The Daily Caller, Forbes, and National Review Online, respectively, where these were published. Um, think about that for a second. Uh, isn't it a problem that it's not hard at all to come up with these lists? I mean, for legal pundits like myself, it's like shooting a gun while walking past a barrel to get a fish sandwich for lunch. Uh, actually, each of those actions will probably subject you to federal prosecution, see this week's executive action on guns. So just think about them rather than, than, than doing them. Uh, Obama hasn't started prosecuting thought crime, uh, though he's getting awfully close with respect to so-called climate change deniers. And as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, uh, that is my specialty. Um, this administration is easily the worst performer of any before the court in modern times, which I think is indicative, again, of its approach to the rule of law. Uh, in modern times, well, probably ever, though, of course, it's more relevant to compare Obama to Bush and Clinton than, say, Benjamin Harrison. Uh, whether you look overall, where Obama is below 50% against a historical norm of 70% by the Solicitor General's office, or just at unanimous cases, where he has a record average of about four unanimous losses per term, and more unanimous losses in his first five years than Bush had in his all eight. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. And by the way, the last three years, Cato, in our amicus brief program, uh, has gone 15 and 3, 10 and 1, and 8 and 7, handily beating the government uh, each time. There are three basic reasons for this. Expansive executive action, including overzealous prosecution. I mentioned a couple of those cases. Uh, envelope breaking, not just pushing uh, legal theories. And the fact that regardless of his reasoning, Justice Kennedy tends to act like a libertarian in close cases. As Miguel Estrada commented when summarizing the Solicitor General's abysmal performance a few years back, quote, when you have a crazy client who insists you make crazy arguments, you're going to lose some cases. If the administration wants to improve its standing before the court, I humbly suggest that it follow Cato's lead, advocating positions and engaging in actions that are grounded in law and that reinforce the Constitution's role in securing and protecting liberty. Or take it from GW law professor Jonathan Turley, who voted for President Obama at least once, maybe twice. Uh, at a 2013 House hearing on the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, where Sy also testified, uh, he had this to say. This is Professor Turley. Quote, while I believe that the White House has clearly exceeded its brief in these areas, this question of presidential non-enforcement has arisen periodically in our history. In the current controversy, the White House has suggested an array of arguments citing the interpretation of statutory text, agency discretion, or other rationales to mask what is clearly a circumvention of Congress. It also appears to be relying on the expectation that no one will be able to secure standing to challenge such decisions in court. David mentioned this. Finally, there is no question that the president as chief executive is allowed to set priorities of the administration and to determine the best way to enforce the law. People of good faith can clearly disagree on where the line is drawn over the failure to fully enforce federal laws. There's ample room given to a president in setting priorities in the, in the enforcement of laws. A president is not required to enforce all laws equally or dedicate the same resources to every federal program. Even with this ample allowance, however, I believe that Barack Obama has crossed the constitutional line between discretionary enforcement and defiance of federal law. Congress is given the defining function of creating and amending federal law. There is more than a turf fight between politicians. The division of governmental power is designed to protect liberty by preventing the abusive concentration of power. All citizens, democratic or republican or independent, 
should consider the inherent danger presented by a president who can unilaterally suspend laws as a matter of presidential license. Alas, in policy after policy, from the Clean Power Act to Obamacare implementation, from DAPA, the uh, immigration uh, expansion uh, program, which I support generally as a matter of policy, um, but uh, have filed, been filing and will continue to file briefs on behalf of people that support comprehensive immigration reform, saying that you need uh, a law that Congress has shamefully failed to pass to accomplish that, to net neutrality and regulating the internet in the first place, uh, and other illegal regulations, the executive branch under Barack Obama has arrogated to itself the power to rewrite, ignore, suspend, and delay laws. This is the antithesis of the rule of law and, I believe, has done lasting damage to the country. I have some questions for David, which I hope he will respond to in the context of uh, rebutting uh, uh, Sy's uh, response to his book. First of all, the title of your book is Lawless. Does that mean both constitutional and statutory violations, or does it even make a difference? Because when the executive branch does something in excess of its powers, that's inherently a constitutional matter. Second, do you really think that former, law, former constitutional law professor Barack Obama's theory of executive power is that the president can do whatever he wants so long as Congress is deadlocked on the matter or that he somehow gets more power in that context, and it's hard for someone to get standing to challenge it uh, when that happens? Sai uh, the third, Sai will say that all presidents do this sort of thing, that there's perhaps an incremental ratcheting up with every administration, regardless of party, but otherwise there's nothing to see here. What's your response to that? Um, fourth, what should we do? Uh, impeachment is a political remedy, and given the polarized nature of our polity, will never happen. Effectively, it's not a feasible remedy unless the approval rating drops below about 20%. That's what the econometricians say. Uh, is there anything else that we can do? And finally, we've seen an incredible increase in state lawsuits against the federal government, state lawsuits, and a little bit from Congress as well. Uh, is that the new normal? Is that the response? The, 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 the breakdown causes other branches, both vertically and horizontally, to challenge the president in court. Now, finally, in terms of criticisms, I, I guess the only criticism I, I really have of David's book is that uh, I should have been the one to, to write it. Um, but I suppose getting a blurb on the back uh, above former Attorney General Mukasey, I, I credit your publisher for that, that'll have to do. Uh, we don't endorse candidates here at Cato. We're a 501c3. We try to follow the law. Uh, but I do endorse this book. Uh, buy it, read it, uh, and uh, tell people that you did so because of my blurb. Uh, in sum, as the nation limps through Barack Obama's lame duck year, uh, Americans have much to ponder regarding the example this president has set for his successor and what powers that successor will abuse. Hillary Clinton has already pledged to take executive action on gun control, even more than President Obama did this week, which was rather tepid, I must say. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it. Charlie Cook for the National Review had a, a, a very good hot take. I also haven't been tracking it that closely given... Uh, the events in my family the last couple of days. Uh, campaign finance, uh, immigration, because apparently President Obama is too timid here as well, according to Hillary Clinton. Uh, corporate inversions and who knows what else. And trigger warning here. I'm going to be more sensitive than David was. Trigger warning. Uh, imagine what Donald Trump would do. So happy new year and enjoy the presidential election. Thank you, Ilya. And now we're going to hear uh, 
a somewhat different perspective from uh, Simon Lazarus, uh, who is a senior counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Before joining uh, the center, he was a public policy counsel to the National Senior Citizen Law Center. Uh, he served as associate director of President Jimmy Carter's White House domestic policy staff uh, and as partner uh, in Powell, Goldstein, Frazier, and Murphy from 1981 to 2002. He was senior counsel uh, to Sidley Austin from 2002 to 2006. And he is a trustee of the Center for Law and Social Policy and a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. His articles have appeared in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, American Prospect, Roll Call, Slate the Hill, Daily Beast, Politico, The New Republic, Huffington Post, as well as law reviews. Um, he writes frequently for the American Constitution Society's blog and has published several ACS issue briefs, including Mandatory Health Insurance, Is It Constitutional?, which was released during the Senate health care reform debate in December 2009, and the health reform lawsuits unraveling a century of constitutional law and the fa fabric of modern government, published in February 2011. His Atlantic article, The Most Dangerous Branch, question mark, has been republished in two anthologies, The Best American Political Writing, 2003, and Principles and Practice of American Politics, Classic Contemporary Readings, also published in 2003 um, by CQ Press. He, uh, like David, is a graduate of the Yale Law School, where he was note and comment editor for the Yale Law Journal. Please welcome Cy Lazarus. Thanks very much, Roger. Um, it, uh, uh, it's always a privilege to appear here at Cato, uh, which I have done on uh, many occasions. Um, uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center, where I serve as a senior counsel, uh, works constantly with Cato, frequently as an adversary and a respectful one, uh, but not infrequently uh, as, as an ally. Um, uh, and so it's in that spirit that I uh, offer what uh, are going to be uh, substantially critical remarks, uh, but not entirely, about uh, the work that Professor Bernstein has, uh, has presented us with. Um, I have to say, I think that, uh, that there is a kind of schizophrenia about this book, um, and perhaps also about uh, uh, Professor uh, Bernstein's uh, approach to the issue of executive power. Uh, on the one hand, there's the professorial side, uh, and there uh, Professor Bernstein acknowledges, for example, that the expansion of executive power, uh, which certainly is an important phenomenon of our time and of our uh, ancestors' time, is a very long-standing uh, structural development, uh, and it has uh, been exemplified by uh, presidents of both political parties. Um, uh, he acknowledges that, but then we have what I have to say is really the propaganda side of this book, which is the dominant side, um, and appears most uh, uh, dramatically in the title, the, the fact that this expansion uh, is such a structural and long-standing and bipartisan phenomenon would seem to undermine the notion that, uh, that 
such expansion as there may have been under President Obama is unprecedented. Uh, it, it obviously, as a general matter, is not. Um, I can't deal with every single example that Professor Bernstein uh, wants to marshal in trying to make the case uh, that the Obama administration has an, uh, is uh, unprecedented and is uh, in sort of recidivist violation uh, of uh, the president's constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. I can't take on every one of these examples. Let's focus on the big ones and the ones that uh, Professor Bernstein himself uh, highlights in his introduction. Um, first of all, we have the old saw of the, the, the uh, Affordable Care Act. Um, now, he repeats, uh, I guess, the endlessly repeated notion that uh, delays in the effective dates of various aspects of uh, the Affordable Care Act somehow constitute uh, not only unlawful actions, but uh, uh, illustrations of a failure uh, on the part of the president to carry out his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Uh, first of all, unprecedented, really. Uh, president George W. Bush's secretary of, of HHS, Michael Levitt, uh, called uh, the delay of the uh, employer mandate, which was the most important of these delays, wise. Uh, and one can understand why he thought that was wise, because in implementing uh, uh, President Bush's initiative, Part D of, of, uh, of Medicare, which uh, created a prescription drug benefit under Medicare, which is another very complicated uh, law, uh, Secretary Levitt was obliged to delay a number of aspects uh, of, uh, of the regs that were mandated by the statute for reasons uh, that are completely the same as, uh, as those uh, which propelled the, these uh, temporary delays by, uh, by President Obama. Sometimes you just can't get it all done. Um, we should note also that uh, it has been the law for, I guess, close to 65 or 70 years under the Administrative Procedure Act that only unreasonable delays uh, in implementing uh, executive actions such as regulations are, uh, are unlawful. Uh, and so certainly uh, they're, they're not unconstitutional. In addition to that, uh, in, in uh, beating the, the uh, uh, Poor Affordable Care Act, again, amazingly, uh, Professor Bernstein, I guess, can't avoid, can't stop himself from relitigating NFIB v. Sibelius and, uh, incredibly, King v. Burwell. Um, Professor Bernstein, you lost those cases. I know you're disappointed about it. I would have been enormously disappointed about it had I lost those cases, um, but you did. And whether or not Chief Justice Roberts, uh, and in the case of King v. Burwell and, and Justice Kennedy and the, and the progressive justices were wrong, and one can make, and you did make arguments that they were wrong, the fact that the administration's actions that were being challenged were upheld certainly shows, uh, I think, that these are not really good examples that would support the contention uh, that the, that the uh, uh, Obama administration uh, is uh, thumbing its nose uh, at the Constitution. Um, and I guess uh, I'd also like to note uh, that sometimes Professor Bernstein's book, uh, for, for whatever reasons, um, 
has, beat horses that are not only dead, but were never really alive to begin with. Now, one of those uh, is uh, an example that Professor Bernstein highlighted in his own remarks, um, and this is the, the notion that this administration has created all of these unconstitutional czars who are running the government uh, outside of the appropriate constitutional and legal, legal structures. Um, he has a chapter entitled More Czars Than the Romanovs. Really? Um, I haven't heard too much about these czars for quite a while. I don't think that they made a, a very large dent, uh, uh, whatever, uh, wh wh however they were hyped by uh, either the right or the left. And I, in fact, I, I would say one thing. I think that um, both the administration, here's a concession, both the administration uh, and its opponents uh, have uh, an incentive to exaggerate the impact and significance uh, of various executive actions that he's taken. The president needs to be shown as seen as making a difference, uh, and his opponents uh, need to say that these, these actions that the president has taken are not only things we disagree with, but are unlawful uh, and evidence uh, that uh, he uh, is uh, a a serial violator of his constitutional duties, um, but they are exaggerations. And, and certainly the czar charge is one of the funniest ones. I, I, I have to note that Professor Bernstein in his book cites uh, an article by my very close friend, uh, Bruce Ackerman, who is a, a very prominent left libertarian and certainly a, a brilliant uh, uh, expert on the Constitution, uh, for the proposition that uh, the, the czars that the president was uh, supposedly creating at some point uh, early in the administration uh, are another milestone on the path to an imperial presidency. Uh, in th this article, Bruce uh, cited the uh, creation of a position in the White House for um, Elizabeth Warren before she became a senator, before she was basically found no place in the administration and, and was forced to run for office, which turned out to be a pretty good thing for her. Um, and he, he says, Bruce said in this article, that um, making her a White House, giving her a White House staff position meant that Secretary of the Treasury Tim Geithner was, would be a mere rubber stamp for her. I think we can all, whatever our political persuasion, chuckle uh, at, uh, at, at, at that notion. Um, and another... Um, dead horse that was always dead is, is Professor Bernstein's curious uh, elevation of the significance of the critical legal studies uh, movement at, at Harvard Law School um, and somehow trying to say that this uh, movement, which I must say I uh, always regarded as fairly laughable, um, should be attributed to all progressives, all progressive legal thinkers, and to President Obama. You even unfortunately said he was, President Obama was influenced uh, by that movement because when he went to Harvard Law School, uh, it had not yet been completely extinguished. Um, you can't say that, Professor Bernstein. We really don't, you know, there's no basis for saying that. If you've read anything that, uh, that he wrote before he became president, um, about his views on law, and he did write about it, you, you would have to uh, say that um, 
uh, CLS was not uh, not at the center of his thinking, um, and specific. And then, in addition to that, uh, I think I um, must uh, say here that trying to blame living constitutionalism, trying to attribute that to all progressives uh, and, and to the administration, particularly right now, is a little galling, frankly, because. The organization for which I work and the reason that uh, we work so closely with Cato so often is dedicated uh, to uh, uh, insisting uh, that the lodestar for constitutional interpretation must be the text and history uh, of the document. Now, we often uh, uh, conclude, with very good reason, I think, uh, that um, when one does that in a conscientious fashion, uh, one actually often uh, comes to find uh, that the Constitution supports uh, progressive results. Um, sometimes we disagree uh, with Cato and with conservatives about, about that, but uh, as Randy Barnett uh, has said, and as a matter of fact, Elia has, uh, has said uh, in a very gracious way, the fact that uh, we uh, make the framework for the discussion uh, what the Constitution actually says and what, and what the framers uh, of those provisions, including the amendments, um, actually intended, that the fact that we make that has made the discussion more civilized. Um, and uh, I have to say that the, the impact uh, of stressing progressive originalism um, I, I think has been quite significant. Uh, if you look at the uh, opinions of the uh, progressive justices on the Supreme Court, uh, particularly Justice Kagan uh, and Justice Ginsburg um, and, ju and, and, and Justice Breyer too, although perhaps to a somewhat lesser extent, um, you would have to see that they are making textualist, text and history uh, arguments uh, uh, for their positions uh, now. So I think uh, it's a little behind times, uh, Professor Bernstein, to be uh, 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 just tarring all progressives and this progressive president uh, with the living constitutionalism brush as evidence of, uh, of, of, of disrespect for law. Um, have I run over my time? That's fine. Well, I, okay, I feel called, and I, and I do want to say that I think that there are parts of this book that, that show the professorial uh, side uh, that, uh, of, of Professor Bernstein and, and the distinguished uh, career that he has had. Um, I, as an aside, I would say uh, that his book on uh, Lochner, on rehabilitating Lochner, while I don't entirely agree with it, certainly, um, certainly was a serious and significant contribution to uh, uh, taking another look at, uh, at that case. Um, I could go into, the, into more detail about that, but I'm, I'm not going to do so. But that is an example of you know, very uh, useful uh, scholarship on his part. Um, and in, uh, I think that his discussion, for example, of um, the OCR uh, issue that he discussed about uh, guidance uh, to universities about how to deal uh, with allegations of, of sexual misconduct, that, that's a subject about which I know nothing in particular, but I also know really I'm not at all familiar with, uh, with the law or the policy history. But I did think that um, that his discussion of it certainly was a serious, uh, a, a, a serious contribution. But as I said, an awful lot of this book, unfortunately, particularly the title, um, uh, is, is, 
is more on the propaganda side. Um, and I have to just point out one thing quickly. Um, I think that there are areas where the book is, plays fast and loose with facts, a lot of them. Um, and one I just have to call attention to. Uh, th there's a sort of, a, I have no other word for it, a kind of drive-by smear of uh, an administration uh, office holder, Virginia Seitz, uh, who was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel uh, up until a couple of years ago. Um, and. What, he, what, what Professor Bernstein says, and perhaps he just wasn't really thinking about it, is that she was selected because uh, uh, President Obama could be sure that she would be a compliant defender of whatever he wanted to do. Um, the fact is, Virginia cites, and would be more so than her predecessor, and I don't know who her predecessor was because the, uh, the office had been vacant for two years, um, uh, because Congress was, the Senate was, was filibustering and blocking uh, her, her successor from being confirmed. Um, Virginia Seitz, who I know, uh, was and, and now once again is one of the top people in Sidley Austin's uh, distinguished, super distinguished uh, team of appellate litigators that's headed up by Carter Phillips and Peter Keisler. Uh, who, if you don't know, was one of the founders of the Federalist Society, and both of them are among the most distinguished uh, uh, appellate litigators in the, uh, in the country, as is she. She had no ideological background that I know of and was purely selected because of, of her uh, unchallengeable uh, qualities on the merits, and that's why she was confirmed by a voice vote. And I, So I, I think that there, unfortunately, this book does not uh, uniformly reflect the kind of uh, scholarly Values that uh, Professor Bernstein has shown in in some of his other uh, in some of his other work. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, David is going to take about uh, three or four minutes to respond very briefly. Then we're going to open it up to your questions. Well, first, let me just say that uh, this book is not an academic press book. Uh, I think I disagree that there. Are, I play fast with the facts. No one has found any factual errors, or we can have a difference of opinion about a particular individual, that's a difference of opinion. Uh, I'm very, it's well footnoted and so forth, but I wanted this book because the constitutional dep depredations of the Obama administration have become such a public issue, yeah. I didn't want the discussion to be limited to elite lawyers in DC and academics and have a back and forth, well, some people say this, some people say that, I'll have a turgid discussion of all the legal theories. That's all important, I do that in my academic life, but this book, which by the way was written when I was on leave uh, from the university to live in Peru, was written for uh, the educated lay reader who's interested in these issues, and it has a, a more breezy and uh, tone to it than the academic work, but hopefully it means also it's more understandable, comprehensible to the average person while still building, I think, fully accurate. There's nothing in this book that I've written a few months ago with all discussion that's been had in reviews and in blog posts and whatnot where I would say that someone's shown for me that I've actually said anything that's inaccurate. I may not discuss every legal theory in as much detail as if I was writing it for an academic press, but that's uh, a choice of... Uh, I was disappointed that the tonnage clause does not make <laughs> Yeah, so that sort of thing. Anyway, um, with regard, just to really briefly go through a few points, with regard to critical legal studies, let me reiterate, I think, because I said, actually said this in my talk in my book, I'm not saying that all progressives are crit critical scholars. In fact, I say very explicitly that most people continue to be mainstream liberals uh, in their own way, just that they have had, that there has been a significant influence of critical legal studies on um, liberal academia, just the way I think Cy and other people at 
organizations, his and others, have said, you know, these libertarians, there are very few libertarians out there on the federal bench or in elite Republican circles, but there's been some influence on them. That's true. Uh, just to take an example that's a little bit outside the scope of the book, you have people like Frank Michaelman, Cass Sunstein, and others who are not critical legal scholars, but over the last 10, 15 years, they've advocated restrictions on hate speech and said those restrictions are perfectly constitutional. That would not have been a mainstream liberal position 30, 40 years ago, but is a position widely adopted by critical scholars that has significant influence. Going to the Obama administration itself, the Obama administration argued in a brief to the Supreme Court, they, not, sorry, they didn't argue in the brief, they argued it before the Supreme Court after not mentioning it in their brief that um, churches and other religious institutions have no right to choose their own clergy, which was contrary to what every single federal district and appellate court had ever decided the issue had held. Every single court, every single circuit had actually ruled on this. Uh, that is an idea that came out of radical legal feminism, which argued that, for example, the Catholic Church should be required to have female priests if, if that would otherwise violate discrimination laws. The religion clauses of the Constitution shouldn't prevent it. Uh, and that is indeed somewhere, where, again, where you can actually see the influence. Again, not that I'm saying they're all critical scholars, but that doesn't mean there's no intellectual influence. With regard to the Affordable Care Act, it would have been very difficult to write a book about uh, the Constitution of the Obama administration without addressing the cases that everyone knows about. It's the most famous constitutional controversy of the Obama administration. And it's actually what we call, I teach evidence also, what we call an evidence race geste, talking about how the Obama administration came to be and the lawsuits over it that reached the Supreme Court is a way of giving the underlying background to what became the later constitutional deprivations. I never say in the book that the ACA itself was lawless, although I do think it was uh, unconstitutional in the way I interpret, interpret the Constitution. I would never say it's a law example of lawless action. I would say that the president's delays, modifications, exemptions from the from Obamacare are in fact lawless. Sai has made the argument here and elsewhere. Oh, this is what all presidents do. No one actually believes that. Uh, professor Nicholas Bagley wrote the best piece on this for the Michigan Law Review. Bagley is a liberal law professor. He supports Obamacare. He was against the Commerce Clause challenges, the Medicaid challenges, and he says, I have uh, in the book the Obama administration's policy-based anxiety at the pace of which the ACA was supposed to go into effect was the problem. It wasn't that they couldn't do it. They were just afraid of, how, of the consequences it would have in the two 2014 elections. There were several provisions like that. There's been Washington Post reporting. And there are all sorts of regulations that were supposed to go into effect before 2012 and 2014. And the administration delayed them uh, in the ACA and other contexts because they, the Democrats begged them to. These are going to be unpopular. You shouldn't enforce unpopular laws until after the elections. That has nothing to do with what the Bush administration did. Uh, and I, I, and I don't, and you know, talking about the academic commentary that I'm just being breezy and just making remarks. I cite Bagley there. I cite Professor uh, Zachary Price of Fordham. I cite my friend Josh Blackman of South Texas Law School. It's not an academic discussion that I published in a law review in that style, but uh, all the academics are cited. Uh, last thing, uh, question about the title: Whether what the Obama administration. Uh, as done was unprecedented, which also goes to something that Ilya asked me, what is unprecedented about it? After all, the executive branch has been growing substantially over um, the decades. I think there are a few things. First of all, the Obama, Obama actually made some very explicit promises when he was running for office. Other presidents haven't made constitutional promises. I am a law professor. I know the Constitution. I am going to obey the Constitution. 
President Bush, the biggest problem he's had is aggregating more and more power to the executive branch. I'm going to reverse that. When a president makes explicit constitutional problems, it then not only doesn't fulfill them, but does the reverse. It really undermines our constitutional culture and the Constitution, and that is unprecedented. Uh, bragging about how he's going to go around Congress. I don't think any other president has done that. O undermining the OLC as explicitly as the president and Eric Holder did from the very beginning of the administration. That's something that Bruce Ackerman has been very upset about and for good reason. Uh, the increase in executive power, often dramatic increases come during emergencies, the Depression, World War I, World War II, uh, the Cold War. There's been no emergencies that justify these things. It's just pure politics. Instead of triangulating like, like Clinton did and trying to compromise with the Republicans, we're just going to go ahead and do whatever we want. And finally, I think the, another unprecedented aspect is usually when a president has pushed executive power, it's been in one specific area, like the Nixon administration and uh, uh, and Vietnam or other examples you come up with, uh, but not broadly in so many different areas and so many different uh, parts of the law the way the Obama administration has done. So that's why when I started to write this book, I thought I was going to write a more academic style, just history of executive power ending with Obama. And I became convinced. Uh, I thought it was all, you know, all this stuff was exaggerated, right-wing propaganda. And when I started researching the book, I said, well, I got, I got upset about this, not just as a law professor, but as a citizen. And I thought I should only alert the public about it in a book. But more important, I'm not really concerned. Obama's gone, pretty much, like Ilya said. What's more important is to warn people for the future. I wrote this book in part for people who are concerned we have a, whether we have a President Trump, a President Cruz, or a President Clinton. Let's think about what happened during the Obama administration, think about the dangers this has created, and not go along with them. I don't care about Obama anymore. He's out the door in a year. I'm much more concerned about the future. Thank you. Well, I am concerned about President Obama because we've got one more year to go. All right, uh, let's uh, take your questions. Please wait for the microphone to come and identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have. There's a gentleman right, right here with his hand up. Did I see one up here? Go ahead. Uh, this is a question for Professor Bernstein. Uh, my name is Theodore Gebhardt. I'm a retired attorney and economist. Um, and it's a historical question. Uh, you talked about the uh, concept of institutional loyalty being trumped by party loyalty on the part of the Congress, which prevents Congress from overriding any veto in any attempt to push back on some of this lawlessness. I'm wondering whether, um, on the congressional side, uh, historically, whether this is more pronounced now than it has been in the past, as party loyalty over institutional loyalty, or whether that has been a historical given as well. That's actually a really great question. And uh, not being a political scientist, I'm not the most qualified person to answer that, but my uh, what I learned from writing this book is that there does seem to have been a decline, especially recently, in the willingness of congressional leaders to oppose presidential authority, to protect congressional authority when the president is of their same party. Uh, and I think one reason for that is that we've just become more and more partisan. I think the parties have divided more ideologically. They used to be liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats in each house, and uh, we don't have that so much anymore. So people now have both partisan lawyers and, and ideological loyalties. Um, but I think there's also uh, a sense that just the new genera uh, younger generation of 
congressmen and women and senators are just less interested in institutional prerogatives. I'm not 100% sure why it is. I mean, certainly it was always the case, you know, when Republicans are in office, oh, the president wants to bomb, you know, Panama, that's great. Oh, and Clinton does it to Bosnia. All of a sudden, no, it's unconstitutional. There's always been some of that. But for example, in the early years of the Obama administration, there was some pushback from Senator Cole, from Senator uh, Russ Feingold, and especially from Senator Robert Byrd. And they all got defeated. Uh, and so the few, ironically, the few Democrats who were trying to push back, or Byrd retired, actually, uh, they got the, the few uh, senators who wanted to push back uh, all retired. But there doesn't seem to be a generation replacing them. And I'm not, I gave you my theory as to why the increased partisanship and ideological polarization. But I'm not sure that completely explains it. I'm not sure I have the full answer as to why. This fellow right here. Anybody over here? Hi there, uh, Phil Wallach from the Brookings Institution. Um, thanks to the nice wireless access Cato's provided me here on their nice website, I can tell you that eight years ago, Cato was holding an event on Bush's Law, the remaking of American justice, and 10 years ago had a paper, Power Surge, the constitutional record of George W. Bush. 16 years ago, they had Arrogance of Power Reborn, the Imperial Presidency and the Foreign Policy of the Clinton Years. Um, and I'd just like to get the panelists' take on whether, you know, is it a pretty short thing that eight years from now or f four years from now we're going to be sitting looking at the next president's record, no matter which party they're from, and lamenting the sort of new constitutional lows to which they've taken us? Um, and if that is the case, I sort of wonder uh, how much work the ideological explanations are doing. Uh, I hope not, but I'm, I don't have great confidence. I should say that I didn't count this up myself, but one of the reviewers on Amazon counted that I have 22 references to the Bush administration in the book, I think it was, all negative. So this is, uh, so I'm not here to apologize to the Republicans or just criticize Democrats. And I don't, I certainly don't have, the way the campaign is shaping up on the Republican side, I haven't, I would, I've been disappointed. I mean, one of my hopes was that not just this book, but the general uh, objection the Republicans have had to the president's actions would have led to the constitutional scope of executive power being a real issue in the Republican primaries the way it has been, the way it was actually, ironically, in 2007, 2008 among the Democrats. And that just hasn't happened yet. I'm hoping it will. I'm hoping there'll be some public pushback. I'm hoping maybe that the uh, Supreme Court will loosen standing a little bit precisely because Congress doesn't seem inclined anymore to, to defend its own institutional prerogatives. Maybe we need to rebalance the standing rules. Uh, maybe Congress could also get its act together and actually pass budgets in a coherent way where they're not coming up with one huge $3 trillion bill at the end of the session that could either be vetoed or not. So every issue of constitutionality of action that may come up is either shut down the government or do this instead have smaller bills like they're supposed to. But none of these things, uh, are things that give me any confidence. I'm afraid that we're probably on the long road to perdition. Um, as as the uh, the Cato panelist, um, I want to ask who's we, Kimosabi. I'm, I'm sure that Cato will have uh, a panel like this one, whoever is president, talking about abuses because abuses uh, happen. Uh, David has argued, I agree with him, that Obama is qualitatively different than, than predecessors. Uh, Roger can talk more about Cato institutionally if, if, if you like, but... Uh, uh, the, the, the preceding president, Bush, uh, most if not all of the constitutional 
criticism that he faced related to foreign policy or national security-related uh, aspects of uh, domestic enforcement like the Patriot Act. Uh, the one, the biggest exception I can think of to that is the bailout uh, at the very end, which of course Obama ex expanded upon, and that was, you know, the, the subverting capitalism to save it and subverting the rule of law to save it or what have you, and that really is a, uh, to my mind, uh, no less dark a moment of the Bush years than, than anything else. Um, and I think that's, um, that's important because, uh, as I said in my remarks, uh, the foreign powers, foreign policy-related powers of the president are uh, not as explicitly outlined uh, in the Constitution as the domestic powers are. Sorry, did you want to? Well, I'll just say something brief, and, uh, and uh, just a, on the general uh, question that you raised about the uh, continued exp or apparent expansion of, of uh, pre presidential authority over all of these decades, um, that's a subject worthy of a serious discussion. You can't have a serious discussion uh, if all it is uh, involves is throwing darts at whichever administration it is for uh, trying to aggrandize its powers. Um, you can't have that discussion if you don't also include the problem of Congress uh, progressively uh, abdicating uh, its responsibilities. Uh, the, uh, the president, any president, Bush or or Obama or the next president, uh, somebody has to be responsible for making the country run and work and defend itself. Um, yeah, that's and, called civil society, not uh, the government. The, the Congress does not have a responsibility to pass laws. Okay, Ilya, you had your shot, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, just to take the, the most obvious example, which is foreign affairs, um, and, and there are serious, there have been serious uh, issues in, in both kinds of administrations that have been debated by very thoughtful uh, people uh, uh, about whether what the president was doing was, was, uh, was appropriate and lawful and so forth. But the fact is, Congress, when, when is the last time Congress declared war? Um, this president has actually asked uh, Congress to uh, uh, fashion a law and pass it uh, with regard to... Uh, American intervention in Syria and Iraq, um, uh, and they they won't do it because they don't want to be responsible. <laughs> they would rather sit back, let the president uh, take the risks, and and then be free to say this was a great idea or it was a bad idea. Um, and and this is true on both sides of the aisle, but from an institutional standpoint, Congress is just simply not performing the way the Constitution is written or the or the framers intended. Now on the domestic side, Ilya. Um, uh, things seem to have improved somewhat in this last year. The, uh, Congress is, uh, there are times when Congress is actually uh, uh, trying to work and, 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 uh, and, and pass legislation, um, and, and that's all to the good. Uh, but the fact is, Congress is still basically just saying no. Uh, it has uh, refused to confirm presidential nominees with the result that uh, throughout the administration, uh, the administration has been uh, seriously understaffed at senior levels, which really impedes the ability of the, of the government to function. Um, uh, I think, frankly, uh, I guess this is a partisan uh, point of view, but the refusal of uh, the House Republicans uh, in the uh, uh, last Congress uh, to 
allow Speaker Boehner even to put the Senate's uh, immigration reform bill to a vote on the House floor where it probably would have passed um, uh, is, is an abuse, uh, a, a, an abuse by a minority and, and thwarting, uh, uh, thwarting the need of the ability of the government to, to deal with a huge and significant problem. And there are many other examples. When, so um, the, the dysfunctionality of Congress is just a big part of this equation, and, and you can't have a serious discussion. To, to pick up on Ilya's institutional exactly. invitation to me, uh, probably, and to respond to the question, uh, probably in four or eight years, we will indeed be uh, holding another forum, whoever gets in to the White House. We are an equal opportunity basher here at Cato. And the reason we are is because we think that the zeitgeist today, with respect to the Constitution, is so far removed from what the Constitution is itself that there's no chance that, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, that the administration will be living up to our conception of a limited Constitution. And so that affords us ample opportunity to hold forums as far as the eye can see until the zeitgeist changes, which is why we exist, to help it to change. Let's have, we have time for just one more question. Uh, that's okay, okay. This gentleman right here in the front, uh, did you have a question? Yes, if you could wait for the microphone, please. Here. Uh, Frank Mannheim, George Mason University. Uh, I think you can make an argument that Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan uh, violated the spirit of the laws, but when would you begin to, or would you uh, tell us about the first presidents in the post-war period who may have set in motion a trend to take it easy on the Constitution and the laws? Well, you've limited it to the post-war period when in fact it should be much earlier than that, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is uh, Exhibit A, I believe, of departure from uh, a constitution of limited government. President Cleveland vetoed a bill uh, in 1887, 100 years after the Constitution was written, that provided the sum of $10,000 for the relief of Texas farmers who were suffering from a drought to buy them seeds. And he said in his veto message that he could find no authority for this expenditure under the Constitution. Now that's a constitutional veto. Uh, rarely do you find that kind of statement today because of course we are of the view that the Constitution authorizes the Congress to do anything that is not expressly prohibited to it, which of course turns the Constitution on its head. And so I'm going to end it on that point. Thank you, and let's join us for lunch, but let's welcome the applause for our audience.